0: The uh, elders here at City, it's my pleasure to be with you here tonight to uh, share God's word with you. We are in the midst of, if you are not familiar, uh, we are in the midst of um, 90 days of worship, focusing on what it means specifically to do corporate worship um, and also to make worship a deeper part of our lives. So it's my privilege tonight to actually preach on, if you've been following the program, you know that there is one psalm of ascent that is set over the whole week, and we're going to be looking at that psalm for this next week tonight, Psalm 125, and then each every every day you have different psalms that uh, you'll be considering. But first I want to ask, especially children who might be here, hey children, anyone have any spare change? Anyone... Happen to know what four words are on this $20 bill and they're on every coin that you might have, every dollar bill? Happen to know what... Alexis? In God we trust. God we trust. She knows. It's true. The uh, This statement is at the center, sadly, of another struggle in our culture's attempt to throw off its ties to its judeo-christian roots. It's a historic statement of faith that's being attacked by those who do not believe it and feel strongly that our country and our culture should be free of such public affirmations. Now the purpose of my message tonight, don't worry, is not to enter into that particular debate, but we must and can realize the truth behind this motto That the issue of our trust and its object is a matter of great importance that impacts us personally and corporately on a daily basis. So, friends, what does it mean to truly trust God? In the small things and the big things, in the midst of personal trouble, or in the midst of societal or global chaos of uncertainty of any type. What's it mean to be truly secure? Where does true security come from? These are certainly relevant questions at any time and place, but perhaps more acutely in 2022 as we see global conflict on the rise as well as continued cultural shifts in our own country and in the evangelical church that leave many people non-Christian as well as Christian feeling unsettled and fearful of the future. So you yourself at this juncture might have this question, what does the future hold? The question for us today, and really in every time and place, is how we will respond to the threats to our personal and our corporate security. Where or to what will we turn? In whom or what do we trust in? So my own heart whenever I preach is a little personal story of trust or lack thereof. We all struggle with these issues on some level. It's been said that as we go from infancy to old age, there's an erosion of trust. I believe it's part of our sin nature. So we're here tonight to talk about what it means to trust God and to deal with the threats to our security. God's faithful word, thankfully, gives us good insight into these things. So our text, which I'm going to read in a moment, is a short little psalm that was sung by Jewish pilgrims as they traveled up to Jerusalem for the prescribed worship festivals. We just studied those this morning in Sunday school. There's just five verses that you'll see in this text. You have a proposition, you have a promise, you have a petition, you have a warning, and you have a benediction, all in five little verses. It's really all about trust and security for God's people. So let me read the short text, and then as we've done this before, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pause and ask you to pray for me uh, for this sermon. Let's read Psalm 125. And then we will affirm, and then I will pray. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for uh, leading us together as a congregation into this season in which we want to learn to do what you have created us to be, worshipers of the living and true God. And we thank you for the psalms that you have given your people to sing, to pray, to meditate on. Lord, timeless truth. And I pray that this little psalm, Lord, would be a great encouragement to all of our hearts tonight. Father, I pray that you would forgive my sins, that you would help me to be clear in what I have to say, and that, Father, your Spirit would guide our meditation on this word. We pray together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the central point... Tonight, my message to you, friends, the take-home residual message I want you to leave with is that you must, you must find your security in the character of our God and in the promises, his promises in Jesus Christ and in nowhere else. I'd suggest to you that in this text, the psalmist, even well before the time of Christ, points us in that direction. So we're going to look at Psalm 125, take it apart a little bit, and see how it will help us learn to trust God and dwell securely in our Father's world. So would you look at verses 1 and 2? You see, there we have a proposition. The psalmist says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. I'd like tonight to persuade you that those who trust in the Lord according to this word are really the most secure people in the world. As secure as the character and the protection of their God. That's what the psalmist is telling us, friends. He uses two similes in these verses. A simile is a comparison of unlike things. In this case, people and mountains. We're shown a firm foundation in verse 1, Zion, which cannot be moved. It abides forever. Verse 2, the protection that the Lord offers his people is given, when? From this time forth and forevermore. These images have to do with the geography of Israel. Now, I've never been there. Hope to go someday. But you could learn from Google Maps that Jerusalem is at the edge of a plateau that's about 2,500 feet in elevation. And it's surrounded by the Judean mountains that go as high as 3,400 feet. So Jerusalem is actually set among the mountains, hence the word picture. The psalmist is giving us strong images to encourage our faith. So Mount Zion, you'll see it in Scripture a lot, is not just a physical entity. There are abundant spiritual connotations. This coming week, if you follow the 90 days, you're going to read Psalm 48, and that's a great song about Mount Zion. So you'll see that as a great representative of Songs of Zion. And it represents there the Lord dwelling among His people. It's where he chooses to dwell. Now, for us to understand this perspective, we need to have spiritual eyesight. We need spiritual perception to see the Lord's protection around us, don't we? Dr. Carl Ellis last week told us that faith sight is better than eyesight. Amen. One of my favorite movies, which will date me, is the 1984 Academy Award winner, Chariots of Fire. It's a great movie, but I wondered when I first saw, where they get the title? Well, it's actually from the book of 2 Kings, chapter six, and I put a little portion in your additional scriptures there. We're not gonna read that text. Here's a brief summary. Elisha is the prophet of Israel, and Syria is the enemy. So the Syrians are conducting raids into Israel, but they find out that Elisha actually has inside information on where they're going to attack. So the Israelites, of course, stay on the move. The Syrians realize they have to go after Elisha. So the Syrian army surrounds the city where Elisha is staying. Elisha's servant wakes up in the morning and sees the armies of Syria and he says oh master what are we to do Elisha says to the servant this is verse 16 of 2nd kings 6 do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them to which if i were the servant would probably say right i don't believe that for a moment And yet Elisha prays, the servant's eyes are opened, and what does he see? He sees the army of the Lord surrounding him. He sees the hills filled with horses and chariots of fire. He's given a spiritual perception of the Lord surrounding him, as the Lord in Psalm 125 promises to surround his people. Folks, the proposition of the psalmist is not just naive optimism. The Psalms are very honest. And we're told these words, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. We're not told these words in a vacuum or just when things look good. We're going to learn this a little bit later. We're told the the context of the Psalm is trouble. We're called to trust God in troubled times in the midst of our enemies. And we see that in the next verse in our text. Look at verse 3. This is the promise. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. We're promised here that threats to our security are not ultimate. You are promised here. Threats to your security are not ultimate. They're not the last word. Though they are real and they must be dealt with. Now let me explain here the scepter of wickedness. We don't often use the word scepter in our normal speech. What is a a scepter? It's a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of sovereignty that a king would hold. So it puts a little picture in my mind. This goes back to when my oldest grandchild, my grandson Everett, was but a year old. We had this beautiful picture of him sitting in his little seat with a cardboard crown on his head, holding a spatula, which is his scepter. He was my little king. Unfortunately, that benign picture is not what the scepter represents in scripture or in world history. State government, kings, the power of the state, the authority of the state often serve As threats to our security. You would feel that way if you were in the Ukraine right now, right? Even though we're called in scriptures like Romans 13 to obey the state, and even though the state is actually given the power of the sword for good, in practice, sadly, the state often behaves badly. So I mentioned before the context of this psalm is important to note here. Our best evidence is that Psalm 125 was probably written just after the Babylonian exile, so late 6th century B.C., which means, if you know anything about Jewish history, Jerusalem was in ruins, the temple was destroyed, Jewish culture had collapsed. That's the stark contrast of the psalm. The external scepter of wickedness was the Babylonians ruling over them. But there are also internal factors. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you find that God's people, the righteous, the people of God, were engaged in unbiblical practices that Nehemiah addresses. And there may be a reference to this in the end of verse 3, when it suggests that it's possible for the righteous to stretch out their hands to do evil. So what's the context for us? Well, I'm not going to wax political. But many in our country would say that we are clearly encountering governmental policies that can be oppressive and that are certainly against biblical values. So we have that threat from without. We also have a threat from within. The Church of Jesus Christ has by and large, sadly, but clearly, compromised on issues like gay marriage, like Christian nationalism, and a host of other issues. History tells us that Christians can easily get sucked into unbiblical positions as the whirlpool of secular cultures swirls around them. You can see that historically, and you can see it in our own day. So, if I was a history professor, Is Mr. Hummus here? I'm going to give you a pop quiz. Name this quote. This is an actual quote. The insanity of the Christian doctrine of redemption really doesn't fit at all into our time. Nevertheless, there are learned, educated men occupying high positions in public life who cling to it with the faith of a child. It is simply incomprehensible how anybody can consider the Christian doctrine of redemption as a guide for the difficult life of today. Who said that? Hearing none. That was the words of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. I um, have read recently... I just guess I have an interest in this, a number of books about the rise of Nazi Germany and the life of the Christian martyr, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And in those accounts, we learn of the horrible happenings in Germany in the 1930s. Christian, or, uh, I'm sorry, Hitler, um, truth be told, was anti-Christian to the core. And yet, he was a really smart guy from the standpoint of seeing Germany as essentially a Christian nation, or at least they saw themselves that way. Germany had a state church founded on the truths of the Reformation. Martin Luther was their hero and guide. And Hitler was brilliant in his co-opting of the German church for his purposes. He essentially Nazified Nazified the church. And sadly, many German church leaders and members... Unwittingly capitulated. Hitler actually had a 30 point plan to change the national church. Here's a couple actual things that were proposed in this 30 point plan. First, the national church demands immediate cessation of the publishing and dissemination of the Bible in Germany. That was a proposal. What did he want? He wanted Mein Kampf, his autobiography, to be put in churches. Here's a second. The Christian cross must be removed from all churches, cathedrals, and chapels, and it must be superseded by the only unconquerable symbol, the swastika. That was the atmosphere, folks. Not ancient history, 80 to 85 years ago in a modern nation may history not repeat itself. The take-home truth for the people of God in every age is that the scepter of wick- they've had the scepter of wickedness to deal with, both from without and within. I'd like to make this a little bit more personal and address an issue that you won't find in the text, but I'd suggest it's a real threat to your faith and mine, and that is an attitude of cynicism. It's a threat that I've found in my own soul, even though I don't consider myself a cynical person. I don't think most people around me do. And yet cynicism arises out of our hearts and can be caustic in its effect on our faith, especially in our lives of prayer. Author Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, sketches an anatomy of cynicism. I'd suggest the price of the book is just in that one chapter. He really nails it his understanding of it, his critique of it, and how we can climb out of it. My heart was exposed when I read A Praying Light the first time, and I found out that even though I may be looked at as an optimist, it is not always so. I can be very, very cynical, and perhaps you can too. Miller identifies this attitude. He helps us to see how the gospel relates to it. Let me just give you a quote from what he says. The opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. Cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. Personally, it's my greatest struggle in prayer. If I get an answer to prayer, sometimes I just think it would have happened anyway. Other times I'll try to pray but wonder, does it make any difference? Many Christians stand at the edge of cynicism, struggling with a defeated weariness. Their spirits have begun to deaden. They may have some hope, but it's not very strong. Cynicism and defeated weariness have this in common. They both challenge the active goodness of God on our behalf. Left unchallenged, low-level doubt opens the door for bigger doubt. Weariness and fear leave us feeling overwhelmed, unable to move. Cynicism leaves us doubting, unable to dream. The combination shuts down our hearts, and we just show up for life going through the motions. This is classic Paul Miller. Some days it's just difficult to get out of our pajamas. Well, wow. isn't that true? I have some days when I wake up and I look at what's before me personally in my job, in my family, in my church. I don't want to get out of my pajamas. I just want to crawl back into bed. That is cynicism at work in our lives. So friends, how can we combat these threats to our security, both from without and within? Let's go back to our text and look at verse 4 because we have, in verse 4, a petition. It's, the psalmist is asking for an audacious biblical faith, and it's expressed in his prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. This verse tells us that God's people can boldly ask him for blessing with audacious faith because their identity is in Christ. Christ now the psalmist wrote these words well before christ obviously so we're talking about an old covenant perspective old testament faith like ours was based upon righteousness by grace through faith that's what the prophet habakkuk referred to when he declared the righteous shall live by his faith in verse three of our text the psalmist mentions the word righteous twice Verse 4 says those who are good, those who are upright in hearts, their hearts. We're not talking here, folks, about an inherent righteousness among God's people. Please do not misunderstand me or the psalmist. We live and are saved by faith throughout all of redemptive history. Old Testament saints live by faith, not by their works, as we also do. We also see in the psalm, you should know righteousness is not perfection. Those terms are not synonymous. If you look at the end of verse 3, as we looked at before, the possibility of the righteous stretching out their hand to do evil, it's there. Righteousness is not perfection. As the psalmist prayed, so must we for this biblical and audacious faith. So just for practical help, I'd like to just return back to Paul Miller's perspective on cynicism. After his critique and his help to understand the problem and identify it, he offers a really helpful way out. He lays out several ways that we can look to Jesus, finding our identity in him and let him lead us out of cynicism. He first talks about warm but wary, Weary of what? Wary of evil. Jesus in his humanity understood evil far more than any of us do. And yet he clung to his heavenly father. His relationship with his father gave him a warm wariness. He was confident in the good shepherd as we need to be confident in our good shepherd. We need to learn to hope again. Not just the ultimate hope. We need that that one day God is going to make all things right, but hope in the here and now. The Apostle Paul expresses that kind of hope in Romans 15. He says, I love this prayer, May the God of hope give you joy and peace in believing. That's a here and now uh, desire. We need to cultivate childlike faith. It's been said that children trust inherently we need to develop or redevelop that same sort of trust, the trust that is not afraid to ask when we have need. We must also develop a thankful spirit, realizing that all of our lives are what? They're a gift. Again, the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian believers, what do you have that you've not received? Gratitude, a spirit of thankfulness will undercut the cynicism you may see in your life. Really, all of this is talking about cultivating repentance in our lives, naming the sin of cynicism and turning away from it. We can be so double-minded, can't we? Hypocritical. And repentance is the antidote. And it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The final cure that Paul Miller gives for cynicism is one that I really want to grow in. It's a wonderful thought. He calls it developing an eye for Jesus in our day-to-day lives, looking for the ways that Jesus shows up in our lives. I need to confess I don't do this enough. Occasionally, this has happened a couple times, Tracy and I at night will ask each other, where did you see Jesus today? Now, she reminded me today that hasn't happened in a while. We need to do that. But I can tell you this, every time that we have asked that question, I can think of something in my day, whether it was an encounter with a patient, a scripture that challenged me or encouraged me, being saved from my bad driving habits or some other circumstance in my life where I saw Jesus show up. Where do you see Jesus showing up in your day? If you find your identity in Him, friends, you can battle this soul-deadening cynicism. And yet the temptation for you and I, each and every day, will be to find our identity elsewhere. In our work, in our wealth, in our family, or in our wonderfully competent selves. We need to find our identity in Christ or, as the psalmist is going to tell us next, we invite ourselves to be under God's judgment. Look at verse 5. There's a warning. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. That's a hard word, but it's a biblical word. We must beware not to turn aside to trust in our own resources or we may call down God's judgment. That's just the way it is. There's a little comparison here in the Hebrew original between verse 5 and verse 1. The phrase those who turn aside and the phrase those who trust. Now my Hebrew from seminary is but a distant memory. But one commentator notes that If you repoint the consonants in verse 5, where it says those who turn aside, you get the same word as those who trust in verse 1. The psalmist is setting up a contrast between those who trust in the Lord and those who turn aside to their own ways. Who or in whom do you trust? Yourself, your idols, or the Lord? That's the question before us. And yet, as the psalm concludes, we see another promise. Blessing is offered to those who trust in the Lord. So that's what we have in the end of verse 5, a benediction. Peace be upon Israel. Brothers and sisters, the conclusion of Psalm 125, God's good word, promises you the shalom of God as you trust in your relationship with him. Shalom... Is of course a rich Hebrew term for peace. You've heard this before. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's not just being free from trouble. Shalom is a sense of God's settled presence with us in the midst of trouble. Shalom is wholeness. There's a covenant connection here. The reference to Israel at the end of our text is not referring solely to ethnic Israel, to people who happen to live in Palestine, those who happen to be Jewish by birth, no. It's talking about those who trust in the Lord, those who in every age and every location place their confidence in the God of Zion. And this ties the Psalm to the Church of Jesus Christ whom the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians calls, he calls the church, what? The Israel of God. Let me wrap up by exhorting you again. You must, friends, find your security in the character and the promises of God in Christ and nowhere else. Can I declare this truth to you? The Lord is your sure foundation and the only defense of your life. Will you believe that? The threats to your security, they're real, but they are not ultimate. I don't know what you individually are dealing with today. I would venture to say that every single person in this room is dealing with something, some heartache, some physical, emotional, or spiritual pain. It's part and parcel of living in a broken world and being a sinner in need of grace. Yet I'm declaring you, friends, the truth from God's Word. That pain that you are experiencing in the here and now, it is not ultimate. Will you believe that? Our identity is the issue, brothers and sisters. In Christ, you can walk in confidence and follow Jesus out of cynicism, out of fear, out of unbelief. Or, and you do have a choice here, you can trust in yourself, your resources, your idols. And you may experience in a very real way his judgment. What will you choose? Shalom. God's peace, both now and forevermore, is offered to those who trust in the Lord. Would you pray with me?